Welcome to ContenderCast, a leadership conversation centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. It's Justin Hahnemann on the ContenderCast for shining a light on bright ideas. Today, you guys are going to love my new friend, Josh Rovner. He's the author of Unbreak the System, Diagnosing and Curing the 10 Critical Flaws in Your Company. I mean, can you even wait to unpack the 10 critical flaws? I can't. Um, Josh, it's so great having you on the podcast. Thanks so much, Justin. I'm really excited to be here. Yes, it's awesome. I had so much fun, you know, diving into uh, learning what I could at least about your book and a little bit about your background. And I can't wait to unpack that with our audience today. For those of you that are listening, um, we're going to dive into the book. But before that, I'm going to talk to Josh about his background, how he even put this book together, where he got a lot of the ideas from. So for those of you out there that have thought about writing a book, you know, always wanted to write a book been taking notes down about writing a book, you'll get some of that today in addition to our unpacking the 10 critical flaws. So um, Josh, let's start with this. I saw your background, heavy experience in the area of revenue management and in hospitality, which is awesome. Um, and I'm curious, how did you go from those types of experiences in different companies to having the thought around this book? So you're absolutely right. I have quite a bit of background in hospitality. I've also got background in other industries as well. And really, it came from the learning and development space and the, organi- the organizational effectiveness space, working with various companies. And I kind of fell into it, doing it at first with revenue management, but then at other, in other areas as well. And I really just started to learn about the space and fell in love with it. And then combining that with all the other companies that I've worked at and all the other roles sure. that I've held on the business leadership side. Got it. I was able to really kind of combine those two things together, you know, understanding how business leadership works and then applying that learning and development and organizational effectiveness lens to it. I started to really uh, do a lot of research and reading and then just kind of, it came together in my head over time, <laughs> over the course of my career and all the things that I've seen, all the struggles that I've seen various companies go through and the things that hold them back uh, that really have an impact on their financial performance, but they don't really get talked about. Sure. They're sort of there underneath the surface. And so over time, with all my experience and the lenses that I've had with my experience and the research and reading that I've done, it kind of just came to me. And my undergrad degree is in communications. I've always loved writing. And so one day I thought, gosh, you know, I think there might be a book here. Mm -hmm. And so I just started to explore it. And then uh, from there, just it happened. And (laughs) uh, I was able to, 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 it all just kind of came together and took a little while, but uh, here we are. Well, I love it. And yeah, every author I, I talk to has got kind of a different method for getting ideas down and structuring those ideas and, and bringing those together in some cohesive form, right? So how did that work for you? Um, you know, and I, I'm curious because I always like to hear kind of the backstory. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it came from working with my publisher, which is great, and uh, really learned a very structured way to do the writing process. And so it started really with creating a full detailed outline and, and, and actually even before that, positioning the book and 
figuring out who I really wanted to target with what I was going to say. And I, I knew from my experience and from what needed to happen and who needed to really hear these messages. It was top executives in companies whose financial performance is struggling, uh, as well as entrepreneurs or other top executives who want to just do the right thing from the beginning. And so that's, that's where it started was, who is this book really for? And then, you know, of course, other audiences can benefit, but that's really the lens and the frame that I applied to it. And then, like I said, it was all about creating that detailed, structured outline for how I wanted the book to flow and what I wanted to include in it. And then once that started, once I got that nailed down, then it was just a matter of really fleshing out the details and adding the stories and tying things together and that type of thing. Got it. And that, that's awesome. And then how long did it take from, hey, I think I've got some ideas here on a book to get it to you know publishing and out and, and available? Like, What did that timeline look like for you? Uh, so it was actually about, it was a little over a year. Um, but that first couple of months, was me just kind of spinning around, thinking it through, and should I really write this book? And maybe I'll write some content and <laughs> so on and so forth. And then really, once I found my publisher, it was a year. But the actual writing process, was, in fact, the funny thing is almost a year to the day. Wow. Uh, my, my book was, was published at the end of February of 2020. Got it. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, you know, once I found that publisher, then things started to move much more quickly. The writing of it actually was pretty quick for me. It flowed very naturally, which I know a lot of authors don't have that same experience. Sure. Sometimes writing is really difficult, but I, I've, I've always liked it. So yeah. for me, it was really great. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's that's great. I always like to hear some of the backstory and, and different people have different stories. Um, so unbreak the system, diagnosing and curing the ten critical flaws in your company. Um, we've got to unpack the the ten critical flaws. So when you were setting up you, a minute ago, you mentioned that you needed to figure out the positioning of the book and what it was really going to be focused on your audience. Like so, share with our share with us who it's um, focused on, and then how you decided you know it was going to be ten critical flaws instead of like twenty. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So. The I decided that it was got to be had to be targeted toward top executives because they are the people in any company that have the ability to make real change and corporate culture emanates from the top down and so to that end it's the top execs who really need to hear this message and that's that's how I decided that this book needed to be specifically for them and then with respect to how many flaws and how I landed on <laughs> ten. That was honestly just luck because <laughs> I didn't really, it was, I'm serious. It was just luck because uh, I didn't really start out having it be that. I just was kind of listing all the things that I was thinking about. And from my experience, what are all the things that I've seen gone wrong, go wrong sure. inside of companies? And then it just worked out that, you know, as I had them all listed out and was editing and kind of tweaking them, uh, I was narrowing down and then it just wound up that it ended up as 10. And I thought, well, that's nice. <laughs> that's a nice round number. So it worked out that way. Got it. That's awesome. Okay. So let's dive in. So um, why don't you walk us through the, the, the flaws in the order that you would like? Okay, sure. Yeah. So I'll go in order of the way in which they're presented in the book. Perfect. I think that makes sense. I love it. 
Um, so, so the first flaw is politics. Mm. Then oh, secondly, start, yeah, I know it's, the a, bang. it's a juicy one. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And, and, and I do that intentionally because politics causes so many other problems down the line in the company. Um, and, and then also the other critical flaws can cause politics as well. Oh. So it, it actually works both ways. And a lot of times politics are caused by the other flaws which we can talk about here in just a second as we sure. get to. That so, sounds great. Uh, yeah, but also also I start with politics because it's one of the trickier flaws to cure because, you know, it involves emotion. And that's sure. something that people don't really like to think about. And it's hard to deal with that in a business setting, especially as a top, as a top executive. But it's there. And if you ignore it, it's not going to go away on its own. Agree. Um, so first off, politics. Second one is what I call blind spots. And there's actually three different types Ooh, of blind spots like that, that make up this critical flaw. Okay. Yeah, what, are, what are the so three types? So there's customer-focused blind spots. That's when top executives are blind to the flaws in their products or services, uh, or they don't prioritize fixing customer service issues. Right, they don't know that they have customer service issues, or they're just not prioritizing fixing them. Um, so that's then there's employee focused blind spots, which okay. ties a little bit into politics. If they're not aware, <laughs> if the top execs are not aware of the politics that are happening in their organizations underneath the surface, um, also if they're unaware of the struggles that their employees are having for whatever Got reason it. inside the organization. Sure. So that's another, that's really the biggest part of the employee focused blind spot when the executives don't know what the struggles are for their employees. Got it. Um, and then the, the third type of blind spot is a process focused blind spot. And that is if a company has a process that they do that's unnecessary or not very effective, or it could be a variant of that, which is processes that seem to add value, but really don't. Oh, interesting. That's a good one. I like that. I've always liked the blind spots idea, you know, when you translate it over to actual leader and that person's blind spots. And this is interesting, a different spin on it. Okay. So we got politics and blind yeah, spots. Yeah. And, and I love that you say that because that's exactly what it is. And I think that's really the focus of this whole book oh, and the angle of this book that's go. unique okay. is that there's so much uh, out there that is leadership development material and for leadership, how to develop yourself as a leader. <laughs> that's and it's, for all sure. about you as, it's all about you as a person, right? But the missing piece, which is quite honestly way more important in my opinion, is, okay, now that you're all better as a person, if you don't apply that to your company and you don't have a plan for how you fix concrete problems in your company that are related to your leadership, then you're not really doing the work. You're missing the boat. And so what I found was that with these critical flaws, um, there's not really a common language around these for top executives. And so... You wind up reading a bunch of leadership books, or you learn about your leadership style or that type of thing, but it all kind of just exists in a vacuum because then you don't really know how to apply it. And so that's what I was trying to do with these critical flaws is to help top executives apply those things in their company specifically to make them better. Got it. 
Okay, I like it. All right, so yeah. we got politics and blind spots. Right. So then we got scapegoating. That's the third one. Uh, that is when we blame one or a couple of individual uh, things for the problems in the company when really the problems are much more likely to be situational and related to a variety of factors in the work environment, not just whatever the scapegoat is. And especially if the scapegoat is people. So many times we hear top executives say, ah, oh, you know, the, the sales aren't right. It's because our salespeople aren't good. Sure. Or it's because the head of sales isn't effective in his or her role, right? They're blaming a person, they're scapegoating. God. But really, it goes much deeper than that the vast majority of the time. Yeah, no doubt. That's a good one. <laughs> All right. Got scapegoating. Uh, so, then number, so number four is unclear goals. Oh, and I can't stand again, that. that can take, <laughs> oh, I know, right? It, 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 uh, it, it can take a few different forms. The first one is most companies don't have goals that are numerically precise. And it's amazing how unless you get a goal that's numerically precise, it's really hard to judge whether you've achieved oh, that goal or so not. so true. So true. Right? Um, and so, why do you so think, why do you think ask, go ahead, I'll, go ahead and then I'll jump in with my question. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's one aspect of it is when there's not clarity around numbers inside of a goal or exactly how you judge whether the goal has been met or not. That's one layer of unclear goals. The second is if a goal is not shared across the entire company, mm. that's the second Sure. layer of that flaw. And then the third layer is if there are other, you know, different departments have different goals that are unrelated to the other departments. Those sort of siloed goals. Um, <laughs> no that's question. the third layer. <laughs> or not connected, flaw. right? I'm, I'm a big fan Correct. of uh, clear vision um, and and simple portable vision. And then underneath that, like you, you're talking about here, goals, um, whether that be individual or team or, or organizational, I'll call them. And I think you're absolutely right. It's unbelievable to me that many organizations set objectives and goals without any metrics around them or don't leverage any metrics to help, you know, even understand how we're performing against those goals. And then, yeah, the other interesting one is on communication and ensuring that there's alignment, right? That's a good one. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. All right. Absolutely. Perfect. All right. So then the fifth one is doing too much. And that's a good one for right after the goal, talking about unclear goals, because not only do a lot of companies have unclear goals, but often they have way too many of them. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) and so, yeah, you, you can't really focus well and get better as a company. If you're doing, if you're trying to do too many things at once whether that's official goals or even a lot of times it's not even, they're not even official goals. It's like, Oh, here, yeah, we've got our official goals, but we also are going to do these 15 other initiatives too. Sure. And you're just, you know, you're doing too much. You're spreading everybody too thin and that's not an effective way to work. No, I agree. (laughs) And again, it's hard to not take on more and more or what I've seen is, Oh, we need to, do less. We need to take some things off the list, but then inherently organizational pressures add more onto the list. It's fascinating. 
Yeah, absolutely. You're right. That's, that's definitely one reason why that happens. Another sometimes is that there are a lot of executives who believe in what I call the machine gun approach, right? Uh-huh. It's just like, you know, pray and pray, right? You, you just, you just throw a bunch of initiatives out there and have everybody work on a billion different things and let's just see what sticks, right? So and it seems like, well, from that, something's got to stick, right? right? right. Um, but the reality is that tends to slow companies down a lot and causes a lot more confusion than it does getting anybody any, any place quickly. No question. All right. That's good. Yeah. All right. We've covered unclear yeah. goals and now doing too much. What's the next one? Yep. And so the sixth one is dysfunctional infrastructure. Ooh. And uh, a company's, <laughs> yeah, a company's infrastructure, I know, a company's infrastructure has a lot of different components. So the biggest component of the infrastructure is the actual organizational design, the, the org structure, you know, what's visible on the org chart. Um, a lot of times companies are set up in functional silos, you know, marketing reports to marketing and finance reports to finance. We've all been there. But the reality is that the vast majority of processes that drive value for a company require cross-functional collaboration. So it's a much better idea to design the organization from the beginning, or if you're already an existing company, redesign the organization so that the org chart itself fosters cross-functional collaboration that you know needs to happen. Um, That's one part of the dysfunctional infrastructure, the org chart itself. But then there's also a number of other components to it. So it's also the compensation structure and the recognition structure, so how people are paid and what they're paid and incented for, how they're recognized and what they're recognized and and incented for. Um, And then it's the expectation and feedback setting process or the expectation setting and feedback processes. That's part of the infrastructure. You know, how do people set expectations? How do they get and receive and give feedback? Um, And then the other component of infrastructure is tools. So what tools do people have to be able to do their jobs effectively? And I think dysfunctional infrastructure, and sometimes that tools certainly includes technology, you know, like the computer systems that you've got or whatever. But I actually, I didn't put that into dysfunctional infrastructure, even though it's part of that, because it's actually a chapter in and of itself. It's a flaw oh, in and of itself. Got it. Okay. Yeah. No, it's good. It's, it's big enough that's that a good it's a flaw in and of itself. Yeah, I like these because so, yeah, so they're so unique. Okay. That was good. Dysfunctional infrastructure. That was number six. Yep. Yep. So then number seven is no SOPs, no standard operating procedures. All right. Unpack, <laughs> unpack that one for us. Okay. So uh, very often companies do not have standard operating procedures that guide employees through the decision-making process for how to get to the best outcome. Or even, you know, they haven't even determined precisely what the outcome should be. They haven't defined that clearly. And they haven't unpacked how people need to go about achieving that outcome. Interesting. So, um, you know, that's, that's one of those things where uh, when that happens and there aren't any standard operating procedures, then performance of your employees is going to be variable. You're going to have sure. a couple people who do an amazing job. 
you're going to have a couple people who are absolutely horrible and everybody else is going to be kind of somewhere in the middle. In there's incredible yeah. value. Yeah, there's incredible value that's generated from looking at the people in the middle of the curve and moving them up toward the top performers by creating standard operating procedures based on what the top performers are doing and what the desired outcomes are. Got and then it. replicating that throughout the organization. And some, many times there just aren't standard operating procedures at all, especially right. in entrepreneurial companies that are growing very quickly. They don't think about that. It's like, oh, figure everything out by the your hand. But right. if you're going to scale properly, you need to be able to get that documented because you need a whole large group of people to be able to produce those outcomes. Um, so a lot of times it's, it's literally no standard operating procedures. But another way that that flaw manifests itself is companies might have standard operating procedures, but they don't have, they don't contain the right thing. They don't Got contain okay. the decision-making flow, right? They don't contain the decision-making flow. They don't contain what the actual outcome is or the sign-off test for how to judge that something is right. You know, a variety of other things. Got it. Okay. That's a good one. That's a unique one too. I, I, I like that one. Okay. That was seven. Yeah. So then number eight is fixing the unfixable. Hmm. And that is when executives uh, or companies as a whole spend a lot of time focusing on underperformance, right? And those could be <laughs> that's for sure. underperforming. <laughs> what, what's that? That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, and it could be underperforming people, but it also could be underperforming entities. Or products, sure. Or, or, or assets or, or whatever it is. Of course. No or question. Absolutely. Yep. Oh yeah. Assets is, a, assets is a great one. Um, and so, you know, that, that very often is wasted effort. And very often you're, you're trying to squeeze pennies out of a rock on, on, on a, on an asset or an entity or a person who is greatly underperforming. So sure. my recommendation is to, to focus differently. And it kind of goes back to the standard operating procedures piece. You want to focus on the top performers and what they're doing and how they're achieving those results. And then place the focus on replicating that throughout the rest of the organization. And when you do that, a lot of times the underperformers take care of themselves. Sure. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you're right. A lot of time gets taken up trying to, you know, bring individuals from a, a four or five to a seven or eight or, you know, and versus the right. six and sevens to tens. And then, yeah, a lot of time is often spent maintaining assets that are being used, but are inefficient and um, a, a big mm -hmm. opportunity. Yeah. That's a good one. Fixing yeah. the unfixable. Number eight, two more. Yep. Two more. Uh, so number nine is legacy technology. Oh, and yes. this one is really <laughs> about, yeah, I know. We've all, again, we've all everybody been there. Everybody knows this one. And yep. everybody knows this one, but it's just, I, I had to put it in there because it's so big and so many companies have legacy technology and they're very afraid to replace it, but they don't really realize all of the problems that it causes. And you know, they know because legacy technology is expensive to replace. I mean, I get it. We all, we all understand that, but sometimes you've got to take into account how expensive is it for us not to replace 
our legacy technology. Yeah, and no question. So, it's a tension and, and though, that, that plays that, out, right, in IT departments in terms of modernization and you know moving off of monolithic expensive technologies to cloud type solutions or other lower cost solutions and then but you got to run the business and there's a lot of work that has to happen to make those types of transitions yeah that's right and it's you're right there's a big tension and that's one of the big things that scares top executives about replacing legacy technology is they don't want to break the business but of course the problem and, and a lot of times there's a big risk that if you replace your legacy technology you know, you might replace it with something that's not even as good. So that's one thing that makes it scary. Uh, or you may break a working process that's generating a lot of revenue for you. And, you know, that's scary. But then again, you know, if you just sit there and you don't replace that legacy technology, how long is it going to take before you get disrupted? And that's the question I think that executives need to ask themselves. And that's why, and not only that, but how much of a struggle, what are the ripple effects of you keeping that legacy technology in place? How much more inefficient are the processes in your company? Uh, what's the impact on the customers of that? What's the impact on your employees of all of that? And a lot of times it's just huge what the impact of legacy technology is. And I think the other, I think the other reason why executives tend not to want to prioritize replacing legacy technology is that sometimes it's unsexy, right? Actually, a lot of times it's unsexy and executives are looking to do sexier things. Um, launch new products, right? Well, you know, that's launch more, brand, launch, more launch, right, customer right, facing yeah. versus kind of back office, right? Right, exactly. And, and it's, it, it's like, do you want to, you know, remodel your kitchen and get a beautiful new <laughs> right. kitchen, or do you replace the plumbing in your house? Right. One sure. is one is not sexy at all, but of course, if you don't replace the plumbing over time, you have some serious problems. So that's the analogy of legacy technology. Yep, that's one that I live with in daily. All right, and then uh, the last one, number ten. Last one, chasing chasing shiny objects. Oh. So, yeah. Guilty. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, they're so hard to resist. That's why they're shiny. Right? Oh, my gosh. And uh, they're shiny. They're exciting. They're right in your face. They come at you. Um, but they're not necessarily what you need to do. In fact, they're not what you need to do. They're distractions. But so many executives can't help but chase shiny objects. And there's a variety of reasons for that, right? You know, obviously they're in your face, they're, they're coming at you. A lot of it is also that there's lack of clarity in the company around what the mission really is and what the vision really is. And, you know, so I talk about that in, as one of the root causes for why executives chase shiny objects. I mean, lots of companies have a mission and a vision statement, but it's usually just silly jargon that doesn't really mean anything. You've got to really think about what is the, what pain are you trying to solve for your customers? Fundamental. Got it. And that's what you need to focus your mission and vision on. Once you nail that down, that helps you to stop chasing shiny objects as well as a variety <laughs> sure. of other things. Um, but chasing shiny objects can take a couple different forms. The first form is just doing whatever the competition is doing. Uh, that happens all the time. Sure. Uh, you know, you can't help but monitor your competitors. You compete with them, obviously. 
So it's like, oh, you know, my competitor's about to do this. We got to do that too, right? Right. Um, that's that's one aspect of chasing shiny objects. And then the other one is, you know, uh, a shiny object is if you are managing your business on a quarter by quarter basis. If you're a public company or if you're trying to go public or something like that, um, there's a lot of times pressure to make the numbers for the quarter and you know you can't miss numbers for the quarter and what's going to happen if we miss our numbers for the quarter and you're managing it on a quarter by quarter basis just hoping that it's going to be all right um and so you wind up chasing a ton of shiny objects for for that when you really sure. should be focused on Other longer things. term yeah, especially as a top executive yeah wow we got through all 10 it's amazing that's, those are awesome. Yeah. You know what I like? So, he, you know, we've all read a lot of leadership books, quote unquote. And I mean, these are not the typical to do's, you know, and I I think this is awesome. I, I really like a lot of these and, um, and they resonate. I mean, I'm living some of these. I've seen others live some, a lot of these. Um, this is such a cool idea and I just like your approach on it. So share with our audience, Josh, like how do they get the book? Like where do they find you? I mean, and, and be able to, to communicate with you and connect with you. Absolutely. So uh, books available on Amazon. Um, and it's just really easy you can search for it. You'll find it. Um, <laughs> and then best way to connect with me, a couple different ways. So my website, you can connect with me from my website, which is just joshrovner.com. And you can also connect with me on LinkedIn. Well, yes, it's the easiest way, right? Well, hey, I really yeah. appreciate you coming on to the podcast. Um, love the book. I, I, I look forward to diving into these 10 and figuring out how I can apply them and leverage them. And um, again, I really like the approach. So thanks for being on. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you, Justin. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope that the book helps you as well. It absolutely will. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck. You can download additional Contender Cast episodes directly via the Apple iTunes App Store, the Google Play Store, Spotify, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the Contender Cast, connect with us at contenderbrands.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender. <laughs>